Asian chapter 3, starting with verse 2. Although I am blessed in the least of all the God, all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ, and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which, you, which are your glory. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. We invite Matt now who's going to uh, talk to us on our last series in Biblical personal spiritual habits, looking at meeting with God. Thanks, Jack. It's great to see you today at public meeting. Uh, let me take you back a little bit into my childhood. This used to be my bedroom. It didn't look like this when I lived there. Those are not my dolls <laughs> in the bottom corner. But this was once my bedroom, and as soon as I moved out, my mum moved in. She tore down my original Jurassic Park poster and hung in its place these samplers, her pieces of um, sewing and cross-stitch and what have you. That represents hundreds, if not thousands of hours of her time, thousands of dollars. And the rest of the house looks just like this, actually. She turned our parent, my family home into a museum. Um, you probably can't see from where you're sitting, but the unifying feature for mum's samplers are themes of Christian piety and devotion. They're mostly based off um, designs taken from the 1700s from young evangelical women, and they usually have prayers or Bible verses or other Christian evangelical themes on them. But the thing is, it's a little bit weird because my parents have never, ever, ever belonged to a church. They have no connection whatsoever with Christian things besides these, really. Uh, every five years or so, my parents, they tick the box on the census that says that they belong to the Church of England. And that's how they still think about things, even though the Church of England changed its name 30 years ago in Australia. Um, but the last time they went to the church um, was maybe two years ago, and that was for a special occasion. They have no connection whatsoever with Christianity. At some point at uni, I got bold enough to ask my mum about this and to work out what was going on. And she told me that 
This was her expression of spirituality. This is how she felt that she got to express her relationship with God. In fact, she told me that you don't have to go to church to worship God. I like to think that I can worship God here on my own, in my own home. And that might seem a little weird, but it kind of matches the way that Robert Bella, an American sociologist, describes our late modern culture as being kind of captivated by this thing that he refers to as expressive individualism. The belief that identity comes through self-expression, through discovering one's most authentic desires and being free to enact those authentic desires, to be your true self. And this is, um, this has kind of weakened a lot of the institutions that build our community and make society possible, but it's also just led to an explosion of different attempts to be spiritual, whether it's samplers or tarot readings or astrology or being into yoga and Pilates. Spirituality has just exploded in countries like Australia over the last two or three decades. This series, though, on personal biblical spiritual habits has been built on the premise that true spirituality is not something that we construct on our own. It's not something we have to conjure up from within inside ourselves. True spirituality is given to us as a gift by the true and living God. And that kind of makes me wonder, as we think about gathering with God's people today, how essential is physically gathering with other believers? Is church merely coincidental to my spirituality, to my discipleship? According to two American writers, Christians have fallen into the bad habit of acting as if the church really does not matter as we go about trying to live like Christians. Christians have fallen into the bad habit of acting like the church doesn't matter to their spirituality. Of course, this isn't a new thing. The only time the New Testament epistles talk about habits, they actually talk about a bad habit. We see that in Hebrews 10. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Do you see it there? Some have fallen into the habit of not gathering, of not meeting together. And Hebrews says that's a bad habit. The habit of not meeting with other Christians, of not enjoying fellowship with one another. But habits are hard to break. They're hard to kick. Ask any smoker. The early reformer Erasmus said that a nail is driven out by another nail. Habit is overcome by habit. What he's saying is that you can't just, if you have a bad habit, you can't just stop it. You need to replace it with another habit. And so as we come to the end of this series on biblical personal spiritual habits, we're looking at a nail, a habit, which pushes out the bad habit of not meeting together. It's the habit of enjoying fellowship together, the habit of the, and the power of presence, of one another's presence, the habit of gathering with other people of being in the room where it happens. As we think about this, I have three points for us which will help us unpack what this habit looks like. Firstly, we're going to think a little bit about the purpose of the church. And then secondly, the need to gather before finally we think about how to gather. The purpose, 
the need and the how. But I need to make two clarifying remarks before we push on. Uh, firstly, you need to hear me say that there just is no substitute for church. There's no substitute for what you probably did on Sunday. In the Bible, there's a primacy to the regular localized gathering of a Christian community which understands itself as part of the one true holy church which submits to Jesus and seeks to build its life on the words of the prophets and the apostles. That's what many of us experience on the weekend and the EU doesn't regard itself as a replacement for that. The EU is not a church. But secondly, the EU is still really worth being part of because gathering together is just part of our DNA as Christians. We see each other as family and we love to fellowship with one another. And that fellowship, that gathering, is not restricted to a local church context. Gathering outside of the local church is something that we seek to do at uni, at school, at work, and in other places. That's not weird. It just doesn't typically replace our church gatherings. Uh, there's a lot to be said about those two clarifying remarks uh, that we don't have time to go into. Feel free to come and talk to me about it at afternoon tea. Or if you really want to, go onto the EU website and listen to Rowan's Ancon talks from 2011. Uh, let's push on. The purpose of the church. Uh, if you're looking for biblical prayers to form and guide your prayer life, like we talked about last week, it's hard to go uh, wrong with Ephesians 3, 14 to 19. And I mean, what a prayer. It's just beautiful and deep and rich in the kind of scope of things that Paul is praying for here. He says that you, he prays that you may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. He's praying that we would know that which is unknowable. It's a prayer for a profound internal knowledge of the depths of God's love, that the doctrines that Christians intellectually believe would become experientially real to their hearts. That's a rich, beautiful prayer. The thing is, if you buy into the habits of thinking that come with expressive individualism, you'll never fully grasp this prayer. Expressive individualism says, you do you however you want. It's just you on your own, and no one can tell you what to do. In contrast, every chapter of Paul's letter to the Ephesians speaks of the need for one another, that the Christian life is profoundly, deeply relational, that no person is an island, that we need each other. And if you grasp, truly grasp the dimensions of God's inexhaustible love for you in Christ, you'll know that being in Christ, that being a Christian, is deeply personal but never private. You know, verse 17 speaks of Christ dwelling in your heart. And it's intensely personal. The individual is not lost to the collective whole here. But it's never private. It's never atomized. It's not just you floating out there on your own. What Paul is actually praying for here when he prays for the Ephesian church is that together as the whole church, we would grasp God's love, not just for me as an individual, but for one another. And it's verse 6 that begins to spell out for us the purpose of the church. Paul speaks of God's spectacular achievement in the gospel. 
He says in verse 6, and it's worth having the Bible open in front of you, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in a promise in Christ Jesus. God's plan for universal salvation that he has enacted in Christ Jesus breaks down normal barriers of hostility and enmity that humans love to put up. It breaks down a barrier between the Jews and the Gentiles so that they're united together in the body of the crucified Messiah. Paul says that in Jesus, we have every benefit. We have Christ's boundless riches of grace in verse 6. And it means that if you belong to Jesus, you belong to his people. There's no two ways about it. Verse 6 describes us as co-heirs. We're co-bodied together. And we're co-partners of the promise. It's hard to exist on your own in the atomized kind of way when we're bound together in one body. And then in verse 10, Paul kind of builds on this by pulling back the curtain slightly so we get a glimpse of the church. Not the way that we see the church, not the church that we may experience on Sunday, but the way that God sees the church. He says, His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. God boasts to the heavenly powers about the church. And that's not just nice angelic heavenly powers. In the book of Ephesians, the heavenly powers are often bad dudes, bad dudes spiritual demonic powers. God boasts about his wisdom, his salvation, by highlighting the church, by showing off this gathering of God's people. Think about that for a moment. Think about your church, maybe your small group, maybe even this public meeting as you look around and see all the different people here. My guess is our gatherings are usually fairly ordinary, not too exciting, fairly mediocre, sometimes even lame. Paul says that God makes his wisdom known to the world through the church. Turns out the church is not an optional extra. It's not like adding roadside assistance to your car insurance. It's not like coming onto campus and maybe signing up an access card so you can get slightly cheaper coffee. The result of salvation is not a bunch of individuals with the church as a byproduct. The church is at the center of what God is doing in the world. God's heart beats for the church, which is what makes the the habit of not gathering with God's people so dangerous. The habit of not expressing fellowship with one another is really to deny the wisdom of God's plan for salvation. If you belong to Jesus, you belong to the church. And if you take Jesus seriously, you'll take the church seriously. But surely there's a problem with this, right? Because this is just so far removed from our experience of gathering with God's people. All the gossip, all those cliques, all the corruption and arrogance that we read about in the newspapers, all those awkward small groups, all those awkward conversations at Arvo T. 
Maybe Paul is being super aspirational here, and this has nothing to do with the reality of church. Surely this is not a wild, in the wild church like the one you went to on Sunday. Perhaps, perhaps we're more inclined to agree with Screwtape, the demon of C.S. Lewis's literary imagination. Uh, if you don't know Screwtape, Screwtape is this master demon training a younger demon in how to tempt away a new Christian from their faith. And this is what he says. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread through all time and space and rooted in eternity. Terrible as an army with banners. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. Screwtape gets that God boasts about the church. But he's not talking about the church as God sees her, but the way that we do. You know, you walk into the room on Sunday, you go through the doors and you have to sing songs that you don't want to sing. Sometimes there's an organ playing and you're not really into organs. There's a drum and it's way too loud. There's a band that you don't want to listen to. You have to sit next to someone who is not like you and is just really weird. Screwtape says, let the humans think about all of that about the greasy, weird people that you have to hang out with in church. Because when humans think about that, then they'll begin to say say to themselves, oh yeah, I don't want to go to church, it's full of weirdos. The truth is that God boasts about the church, and not just the church, he boasts about your church, your little church with the cajon in the band, and the fluorescent lighting, and the smelly people. Your church, which may not be as awesome as the other church down the road, Jesus loves your church, no matter how ordinary or lame it is. If it's a church that is built on his word and seeking to glorify him, Jesus loves your church. That's the church that he died for. When you look around at your gathering at church or at your small group, when you look around here on campus at public meeting, There may be people that you would never talk to, never have anything to do with, except that Jesus died for them, just like he died for you. That's what Paul says, right, in Ephesians 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Do you love the church? Do we love the church? Jesus loved it so much he was prepared to die for the church. Not just you and me, not just for our mates, but the whole church around the world. Jesus took our sin, our guilt, our death, took it to the cross all the way to hell so that we could be presented to him as radiant and blameless without stain or blemish. Jesus loves his church. Uh, You may have heard of a German theologian called Dietrich Bonhoeffer who was executed at the end of World War II by the Nazis because of his resistance to Hitler. When Hitler first came to power, the church in Germany felt this immense pressure to give in 
and to align themselves with the Nazi agenda. Uh, Bonhoeffer was part of the resistance to this. They didn't want to say that Hitler was Lord. And out of that kind of resistance, Bonhoeffer wrote a, a fantastic little book on Christian fellowship called Life Together. It gets a, bit, a little bit weird at the end. He starts talking about how you shouldn't sing in harmony. But the first chapter, the first chapter is, is gold. And he says that Christians gather together in a way that's different to an interest group or a hobby group. He says that, this is a little bit long, so it's, but it's worth bearing with it. Bonhoeffer says that Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. No Christian community is more or less than this, whether it be a brief single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. And he goes on, what does this mean? It means first that a Christian needs others because of Jesus Christ. It means second that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. It means third that in Jesus Christ we have been chosen from eternity, accepted in time, and united for eternity. So God permits Christians to meet together and gives them community. Their fellowship is founded solely upon Jesus Christ and his righteousness. All we can say, therefore, is the community of Christians springs solely from the biblical and reformation message of the justification of man through grace alone. This alone is the basis of the longing of Christians for one another. The longing of Christians for one another. Bonhoeffer says that we gather with other Christians, not because we're really into stamp collecting, or we all really dig Marvel movies. If we gather for any other reason, he says, we haven't fully grasped the, um, the radical nature of the gospel that brings together enemies into one family. Uh, you may have heard the Tory party, the Conservative party in the UK, um, there used to be this, such a close alignment between the Tories and the Church of England that the Church of England was known as the Tory party at, at prayer. And if that's all the Tory party, if that's all the Church of England was, that's a massive, terrible disaster to be so closely aligned with one political party and not others. We gather together not because of what we have in common, our hobbies, our interests, our likes or dislikes. We gather together with other Christians because Jesus has died for our sins and calls us brothers and sisters. We are family, not only with Jesus, but with one another and so we need each other. Gathering is so essential for your spirituality, for your discipleship. It's only actually when you understand this that you can cultivate this habit from the heart and not just do it out of the exercise of your willpower. Jesus loves his church and died for it. And the blessing, the grace of belonging to Jesus is that you belong to one another as well. Of course, of course there are problems with the church. Of course it's weak and sinful, just like you. If that wasn't the case, Jesus wouldn't have had to have died for you or the church. But for all our frailties, the church is so deeply loved. 
and you are really just like all those other weird, smelly, annoying people seen next to you at church or in the EU. You're co-heirs, co-bodied, co-partners of Christ's boundless grace. The degree that to which you grasp this, that you were dead in your sin, but Jesus loved you and died for you, that's the degree to which you'll be able to love and serve the church for which Jesus also died. That's the degree to which you'll allow yourself to get close to people in small group or at Ancon, at church, here at PM and at Arbo T. You'll be able to get close to one another with real relational thickness and vulnerability, even in those times when church is not so exciting and not so awesome. Again, Bonhoeffer says, it's only by a gracious anticipation of the last things that Christians are privileged to live in a visible fellowship with other Christians. It is by the grace of God that a congregation is permitted to gather visibly in this world to share in God's word and sacrament. We're joined into this one new family where we get to experience fellowship with one another. That is a gift of God for us, an achievement of the cross for us. We get to gather and rejoice and cry with one another. We share life together as we serve one another with warmth and hospitality. And it's at church that we get to partake in the sacraments together and remind one another of God's goodness and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Jesus died for his church, and it's in the church through the ministry of God's word and God's spirit that God meets with us. Because that's what happens when we gather together. We encounter the true and living God in those gatherings through his word and by his spirit. It's just hard to imagine the Christian life, at least a flourishing Christian life, without gathering together in Christian community. So we need to actually gather together. Uh, For some years now in the EU, we've talked about the way that God grows and changes people and we've been convicted that the way that god grows and changes people is through his word by his spirit and amongst his people in christian spirituality word and spirit are inseparable they always go together god uses both to change and transform us into the likeness of his son and our brothers and sisters are part of this as we meet with one another encourage one another Speaking to each other's lives, God works through us to grow each other. We build each other up as we speak the word to one another. By his spirit and through his word among his people, we encounter the true and living God. And you see this in dozens of places across the New Testament. But Colossians 3.16 is one of those places that always comes to mind, that Christ's word dwells richly in our hearts as we speak to one another, as we teach one another, as we admonish one another, even as we sing together in praise of our God. We need one another. You can't be a lone ranger Christian. We need to gather together. And recent research tends to back up this necessity of the habit of gathering together. Uh, You may have heard of a pastor from here in Sydney called Anthony Varipoff. Uh, he analyzed church attendance here in Sydney for his doctorate of ministry. And he found that while most church um, attenders 
uh, tended to overestimate the number of times they're at church at around 85%. The reality when you go through roles was that people were on average at church around 66% of the time. But he also found that if you stop gathering with God's people regularly, there's a very high correlation with a lack of spiritual growth. If you stop attending church, you stop spiritually growing. And often then people stop being Christian altogether. If you want to stunt your spiritual growth, stop gathering with God's people. But if you want to keep growing, cultivating this habit and growing in your knowledge and love and understanding and service of God, we need to gather together. And so for the sake of your spiritual health, we need to be in the habit of gathering with God's people. And that's something we need to do, not just for now, not just for current you. We need to do it for the future you as well. C.S. Lewis said that we are always sowing the seeds of our future selves. We are always sowing the seeds of our future. And as we look to our future, particularly given who's in this room, under God, there are probably two big transition moments not too far away on the horizon for some of you where cultivating this habit of being regular, regularly gathering with God's people will benefit you not only now, but benefit your future self. The first is graduation. Uh, for some of you, that feels like it's a lifetime away. But at some point, you will leave the university. And starting full-time work often reduces your free time and your energy. It's something that people in their first year out of uni always tell me. They're tired, they feel like so busy, like they've never been busy before. They just have, don't have time to do everything they want to do. And so often they're really tempted to skip church, especially if they go to an evening service and then they have to go home and iron their shirts and make their lunch and get up at 6 a.m. the next day. Whenever you graduate, the habits that you cultivate now will help you navigate that change, that transition with wisdom and grace. It will help guard against falling into the habit of not gathering with God's people. And a second transition moment that needs to be on your radar is if you start having kids at some point in the future. Um, kids take up a lot of mental space and time and energy. Turns out they get sick. And you can't just leave them at home while you go off to church. I, I always used to be at church half an hour early. And that hasn't happened in the last two years since my daughter arrived. And then, this hasn't happened to me yet, but it's coming. They start getting invited to parties on Sunday. They want to play a sport on Sunday. And before you know it, it's been six months before you were last at church. These are two big transition moments that you need to have not only on your radar, but you need to be cultivating the habit of gathering with God's people now so it bears fruit not only in 2019, but in the years to come if the Lord hasn't returned. We are always sowing the seeds of our future selves. We need to gather. So when it comes to the habit of gathering with God's people, here are four habits I think that will help you cultivate a habit of gathering with God's people here on campus and at church. And the first habit 
really is just be there. Uh, the writer Aaron Sorkin, via the lips of his characters on the West Wing, said that history is made by those who show up. That might be a little bit overblown, but there's a truth to it, isn't there? And whether that's here at church or in your faculty's small group, in a one-to-one meeting on campus or a PM or your faculty weekend away, be there. Show up. You kind of get a glimpse of this in a different kind of way in 1 Peter 1.22 that talks about now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. It's hard to actually express that if you don't turn up. It's hard to love one another deeply if your spiritual life is just you sitting on your own at home, praying and reading the Bible. Be regular and consistent in your gathering. Own your gathering. Crave fellowship with one another. In another passage in Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this most extraordinary of things, that the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. I think he's right. But often I don't feel that on Sunday morning when I want to get up, or when I have to get up. The physical presence of other Christians is an incomparable joy and strength to the believer. To gather together with one, one another as we pray for one another and the world and as we read the Bible together, it's an immense privilege, says Bonhoeffer. A real joy, not just for the mutual encouragement that we bring to one another, but it spurs us on and keeps us going in running the race. We need each other. And maybe this is a word that we need to hear now on campus, because it's hard to gather here on campus with other believers if you don't spend much time here on campus. Uh, I get to work with the EU's ministry to academics, and they tell me that students are spending less time on campus than ever before. One of them told me that he turned up to teach a lecture where there's 200 students in the class. And can you guess how many people turned up for this lecture? Two. <laughs> Rough. Pharmacy students as well. They're meant to be really busy. I get, I get that there's a lot of pressure to work, to intern, to travel, to go and exchange. And I get as well that you may need to underload for the sake of your health and other things. But I also know that the temptation to cram all 16 or 20 hours of your class into two days is real. Or five hours if you're an art student. Own the Christian community here on campus. Crave fellowship here with one another. For your brothers and sisters and for the lost on campus, be here. There are amazing opportunities when it comes to loving and serving and connecting and taking the gospel to the lost here on campus just by being here and making this a better place than it is without you. Be here. Commit to the gatherings here, not because you have to, but because you can serve people for Jesus' sake by being here. You'll never have more time, more capacity and less responsibility in life than you do right now. So don't miss the opportunities for spiritual growth and evangelism here on campus. What could this look like? It might mean that you set aside a day or half a day to 
be around and participate in the life of the EU and just be here. On a faculty level, be involved, especially in a small group. Enjoy that precious, precious fellowship that comes through sharing life together, reading the Bible and praying with Christians in the same degree or faculty as you. When else in life will you get to do that? And as a union, make sure you come to public meetings, which, you know, I don't want to wave the finger at you because you're actually here. But make sure you keep coming to public meetings, not only in your first or second year, but all the way through your life at uni. Sit under the word with one another. Going to public meetings is more spiritually enriching for you than listening on a podcast at home because the Christian life is profoundly relational and it's hard to experience that on your phone. There also, I kind of hesitate to say this because of my involvement with the Ancon team, but I think it's true. Public meetings are more enriching for you perhaps than Ancon because of the regularity of listening to Rowan and others open the Bible week after week as opposed to the camp high of Ancon. Be here. Your presence is an incomparable joy and we miss you when you're not here. Uh, the second practice to help cultivate this habit is to manage your own expectations. Our gatherings are full of people who sin and that includes you. And so expect to be hurt by others and expect to hurt others. And so as we gather, let's avoid pessimism and idealism and let's instead learn to deal with sin like a Christian, repent and confess your sins to one another, clinging to the grace that God gives us in Jesus. And this is a practice that you'll really need for those times when you're hurt, and I mean deeply hurt, by gathering with God's people. Let me put it this way, if you ever end up being harmed by a doctor, if you ever suffer medical malpractice, eventually you still have to go back to, the, to another doctor to have them fix what the first one did, no matter how much you hate doctors. And there are healthy gatherings of God's people out there, ones that can deal compassionately and graciously with the wounded and bring the healing words, words of Jesus to bear on your life. The third practice is seek to make a contribution. Um, despite what expressive individualism says, we're neither consumers or spectators when it comes to church. Instead, we're members and participants equipped by God for service because we belong to one another. And so make sure you ask yourself when you head to small group or church or the public meeting or to a faculty weekend away, am I here to give or just merely to take? Seek to make a contribution to the life of the gathering. And the fourth practice to cultivate is not just be there, manage your expectations, seek to make a contribution, but fourthly, honour God in your gathering. Because when we gather together, don't forget what we're doing. There's a spiritual reality going on here. Through his word and in his spirit, our gatherings are an encounter with the living God. Your gathering with God's people gather together in Jesus' name around his word and in the presence of his spirit. That's not something to ever despise it's something to treasure and so as we love one another seek to build one another up in truth and love speak words of grace and truth to one another as we encounter the true and living god in his word and by his spirit as we wrap up we live in a culture in which the interests and desires of the individual 
tend to take precedence over those in the family or the group or community. And as a result of this expressive individualism, a high percentage of people want to achieve spiritual growth without losing their independence to a church or any organized institution. You can see that in the census where 20% of Australians, it's estimated now, tend to claim to be spiritual but not religious. And it's the spirituality of people like my parents who say, I'm not spiritual, or I'm, I'm spiritual but I'm not religious, or I like Jesus but I'm not into Christianity. There's no way that you'll ever be able to grow spiritually apart from a deep involvement in a community of other believers. You can't know Jesus better without gathering with other Christians. You can't live the Christian life without a family of believers in which you find a, a home, a place. Only if you are part of the community of believers seeking to resemble and serve and love Jesus will you ever get to know him and grow in his likeness. A couple of weeks ago, I was reflecting with someone at RVT that these spiritual habits are so simple. You don't need to invent a new ministry structure to start them. You don't need to fundraise thousands of dollars to get started. You don't need planning and approval by a committee. You can just start cultivating these habits now. But it's often the simple things that we find hard to do. And if you try to cultivate these habits through your own willpower, with sheer grit and determination, they'll either crush you when you fail or make you feel proud and arrogant when you succeed. And ultimately, you'll get pulled back into the belief system of expressive individualism. It's only as we grasp God's grace that we can go the distance with these habits. In Jesus Christ, God has severed the nexus between our performance and our salvation. He accepts us not because of who we are or what we do, but because Jesus died for us and loves us. When you get that, when you, can, when you get that you can approach God with freedom and confidence, like Ephesians 3.12 says, that's when you can pursue these habits as a response of God's generosity towards us, knowing that he gives them to us to grow us into Christ's own likeness. God speaks to us. God hears us. God meets with us. So let these nails drive out the bad habits of your heart. Cultivate them so that you would grow more and more into God's fully devoted children who know and love and serve him. Amen.